Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's August 2022. This week, I return to the most quoted line in the Supreme Court's recent Dobbs opinion, where Justice Alito says that it is time to overrule Roe and, in his words, return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. With now a month worth of activity and response and analysis to consider since the release of Dobbs, I consider three complexities that have emerged about who those elected representatives are, what state they're in, what branch of government they are in, and finally, if those elected representatives are in other social institutions, such as churches, are they in government at all? In June of 2022, the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. In that opinion, probably the most quoted sentence comes from the beginning of Justice Alito's opinion for the majority, where he says, It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. He continued by quoting from an opinion Justice Scalia wrote, concurring and dissenting from the Casey opinion in the 1990s, The permissibility of abortion and the limitations upon it are to be resolved like most important questions in our democracy, by citizens trying to persuade one another and then voting. Well stated. But in just the month we've had that has elapsed since Dobbs came out in late June of this year, serious questions have arisen about who exactly the people's elected representatives are, and today I'm going to consider three questions about that. The first is, put simply, which people? The people of the state where a person resides, the people of a state where an abortion occurs, the people of a state where information is transmitted to connect someone seeking an abortion with a provider. Those questions have proven surprisingly complicated. In July of this year, group of conservative members of the Texas legislature wrote to the management of a large law firm based in Dallas and announced their intent to enact legislation in the upcoming legislative session that would, and I quote, prohibit any employer in Texas from paying for elective abortion or reimbursing abortion-related expenses regardless of where the abortion occurs. It goes on to say that will be a felony criminal offense under the laws of Texas and also discusses potential civil liability under a structure like Texas enacted last year in SB 8, allowing private citizens to sue for civil penalties. This raises some profound questions about the power of one state's legislature over the residence of and the activities within neighboring states. The principal constitutional criticism of laws like this comes from the idea of a right of interstate travel. The Supreme Court has recognized this for about as long as we've had a constitution, but it's always been sort of in passing or in the context of explaining why some other right is or is not as strong as the litigants in that case argue that it is. A great example from 1873, the so-called slaughterhouse cases. The city of New Orleans, if you read a little bit about this case, the facts are kind of gross, really, had a big problem with hygiene and public health in the animal slaughtering industry. The mouth of the Mississippi, there was all this livestock, cattle, pigs, you name it, and there were a lot of problems with the safe handling of these animals, the safe disposal of waste, and that sort of thing. New Orleans responded by creating a city-run slaughterhouse operation where all this activity would be consolidated, 
private slaughterhouse owners sued and, among other claims, alleged that they were being denied the privileges or immunities of citizenship. That is one of the specific items protected by the recently enacted 14th Amendment. This case reached the Supreme Court in 1873. The 14th Amendment became effective as one of the three post-Civil War amendments in 1868. The Supreme Court rejected the argument that the private slaughterhouse owners made under the Privileges or Immunities Clause. In so doing, by the way, they made the Privileges or Immunities Clause largely valueless as a check on state laws, thus directing the court for the next hundred-plus years into discussion of the due process and equal protection provisions of that amendment. But in so doing, the court defined that provision of the 14th Amendment as dealing with rights of national citizenship, not at issue in that case because this involved an entirely intrastate affair, but in explaining what those rights were that that clause protected, it made this observation. A citizen of the United States can, of his own volition, become a citizen of any state of the Union by a bona fide residence therein with the same rights as other citizens of that state. Fair enough. And we see this every day. People decide to move from Texas to California, California to Florida, what have you, and they do so freely, and there are no legal restrictions on that other than the necessary administrative matters of changing your address and getting connected to electricity and that sort of thing. There's no interstate passport required. There's no entrance fee to the state, that kind of thing. But that general principle, stated abstractly, is difficult to apply to specific restrictions such as this one. Does it allow a state to reach across a state line and regulate activity that its residents are knowingly participating in in that state? Can a state put a tax on something that occurs across the state line that potentially implicates other constitutional ideas as well? The point being, though, that the general long-accepted principle that you have a right to travel freely between states and even move to a new state if you want to only answers part of the questions raised by these new laws. The question of who the people's representatives are that are allowed to speak in this area, whether Texas can regulate what its citizens do in Oklahoma or New Mexico or California or what have you, or whether it can regulate the flow of commerce or factual information or opinion discussion among various states, is an issue that is going to have to be litigated and the contours of which are frankly somewhat vague. Second question in terms of who are the people's elected representatives, is which representatives, which branch of government. In the letter I referred to earlier, written by the conservative group of Texas legislators, they say, The legislation that we will introduce next session will empower district attorneys from throughout the state to prosecute abortion-related crimes when the local district attorney fails or refuses to do so. County district attorneys are, of course, elected representatives of the people, as, incidentally, are judges in Texas who are elected in partisan political elections, unlike many other states in the country. It's been accepted for many, many years in Texas that a county district attorney has authority over what prosecutions will or will not be brought in that county. Consider, for example, this statement by Texas's highest criminal court, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, in 2004, case of Neal versus State, in a discussion about these issues, observed, in our system, so long as the prosecutor has probable cause to believe that the accused committed an offense defined by statute, the decision whether or not to prosecute and what charge to file or bring before a grand jury generally rests entirely in his discretion. Concept of prosecutorial discretion goes hand in hand with the considerable power given to district attorneys. They have great power to prosecute crimes, but they don't have to prosecute 
everything that could be a crime. They're entitled to have agendas, they're entitled to set priorities, they're entitled to give direction to the work of their office, and to make their own decisions about how to deploy the necessarily limited resources of any legal office. You can't prosecute every potential crime that is out there. What happens? When the elected official of Travis County, for example, who doesn't seem particularly interested in prosecuting abortion-related crimes, comes into conflict with a district attorney from another county who does have a strong agenda of prosecuting abortion-related crimes, do they both have authority? Does one trump the other? Does a court make the decision if the two are in conflict? Does the legislature? Almost any thinking about a potential conflict there brings into play not just one or two, but all three branches of government, the district attorney, a branch of the executive, the legislature who drafts the rules that guide everyone in this area, and judges who will be called upon to straighten out conflict if the legislature is not expressly clear about whose judgment will control in a conflict situation. The idea of prosecutorial discretion has historically placed great power in the local elected representative, the people in the executive branch. It remains to be seen if other executive branch officials, the legislature, or the courts will now become part of that decision-making process or even replace the voice of those particular elected representatives in making these decisions. Third question in determining who the people's elected representatives are, which election? We choose many people to represent us in many different situations. We, of course, vote for people to hold office in our government, but we also select people to lead our businesses, to lead nonprofit organizations that we are involved with, to lead our neighborhood association, and to lead the churches that we belong to. Some are more democratic in terms of interaction with the local congregation than other, but all express in some way the desires of the members of that congregation or that church writ large as to who will lead, organize, and direct that particular organization. Examining the leaders of religious groups for a moment, we see profound disagreement after the Dobbs opinion. I quote a couple of Twitter examples. Dr. Robert Jeffers, the leader of First Baptist Church in Dallas, the day of the Dobbs opinion, said this, there is one reason Roe was overturned today. In 2016, evangelicals elected Donald Trump, who kept his promise and appointed three pro-life SC justices, full stop. He sees Roe as a triumph of the evangelical, with a capital E, by the way, agenda that he and his church are in the forefront of. That same day, a post from the American Jewish Committee, an organization that posts thoughts associated with Reform Judaism, stated, AJC is profoundly disappointed in today's U.S. Supreme Court ruling overturning the landmark Roe v. Wade decision. We have long opposed government interference in a woman's right to have autonomy over her body. What happens if a religious group with legitimately chosen leaders chooses to engage in activity that assists abortion that is arguably in conflict with a state law that is against it? Of course, here we return to the biblical admonition, you must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. A church cannot simply defy state criminal law. But there's always room to argue around the margins, there are always gray areas, and there is always room for a constitutional challenge based on the First Amendment's protection of religious freedom if a law does impermissibly conflict with a genuine expression of religious belief. Here we may find some guidance from a different context, but not wholly unrelated one from 1993. The city of Hialeah case involved an issue with the religious practices of Santeria, in which the sacrifice of live animals is a significant part of certain rituals. The city had enacted rules that 
while nominally involving hygiene, in fact were clearly targeted against this particular religious practice, the Supreme Court, in striking them down as violative of the First Amendment, observed, The same is true for the city's interest in prohibiting cruel methods of killing. If the city has a real concern that other methods are less humane, however, the subject of the regulation should be the method of slaughter itself, not a religious classification that is said to bear some general relation to it. The leap from animal sacrifice to abortion regulations is obviously not a perfect analogy and a somewhat gruesome subject to discuss, but the point is a valid one that a general law cannot become something that specifically targets a group's legitimate exercise of religious expression. And if a group, such as a Jewish congregation, following the point of view from the Twitter quote I read earlier, chose to assist people with crossing a state line to a state that is protective of abortion, there is a legitimate question whether that should be treated differently than a purely secular organization engaging in such behavior. To return to the phrasing of Justice Alito, Which elected representatives should guide us, those elected politically or those elected through the processes of a religious organization for choosing its leadership and organizational structure? These are only three examples of potential disputes about who constitutes the people's elected representatives after Dobbs from only one month of examination. These questions are complicated, they're subtle, and they're going to likely lead to considerable legislation and litigation and Supreme Court cases in the years ahead. In this episode of Colmind, I looked at three issues about who exactly are the people's elected representatives referred to by the Dobbs opinion. Even that short discussion shows that there is far more to the relevant picture than there may have seemed when that sentence was written, and that years of negotiation, politics and litigation lie ahead to totally develop its full meaning. For upcoming episodes, I plan to continue looking at the many issues that have developed since Dobbs, as well as other constitutional questions of the day. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you like it, I encourage you to join other Please listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon. 